Hey, good morning, church. How you doing today? Man, it is good to see you again this week. I know this is a first Sunday back for some of you. Some of you were here with us last week, but... I just want to say again, welcome home. It's good to have you here. And for those of you joining us online, it's great to have you with us wherever you are. Want to take a moment and give a shout out to all the dads in the room. I know we all already did this, but it's worth doing again. So if your dad, raise your hand. And if you're sitting by a dad, go ahead and give it up for him, right? Woo, to all the dads. Yeah. And to the dad figures in the room too, right? Because listen, I know that there are a lot of dudes who wanted to be a dad, and sadly, it just was not in the cards for you. But of all the guys, and we, we feel that for you. Um, but of all the guys that I've been close to in my life who've been in that situation, um, those guys have had tremendous impact on several other guys and especially on younger generations. So for all the dads and dad figures, happy Father's Day. We celebrate you and we are grateful for you. Now, I'm also aware that there are some of you who your story with your dad isn't one that you'd like to celebrate. Uh, there are some of those guys who unfortunately have brought more pain than joy into the world. And if that's been your experience, I hate that for you. I, I hurt for you. Um, I'm sad that that's part of your story. But I do want to remind all of us that we have a good, good father in heaven. Regardless of your experience and your story with your dad, whether it's the dad you still have, or in my case, the dad you had, we want to remember that our Father in Heaven loves us with a radical, unconditional, never-ending, overflowing kind of love. And He wants the very best things for you. God's Word tells us in 1 John, See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. We are children of the Most High God, children of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, children of the God who created, made, and sustains this universe and he wants the very best things for you. So we can rest in that. Now today we are continuing in our series, Home Improvement. And today we're talking about the man cave. In case you couldn't quite figure it out with the uh, decor on the stage. I, I don't know that we should call that stuff decor. I don't know that Harley Davidson's and four-wheelers are decor. But the stuff we got on the stage, right? That, that's a man environment. So today we're talking about the, the man cave and we're going to talk specifically to the dudes in the room. Now, what we're going to be talking about today isn't only for the guys, but I'm going to do a little pushing on the chest of the guys in the room. Now, as children, it's inevitable that we are going to pick up the mannerisms and the sayings of our dads. That should be true of us as children of our Heavenly Father. That should be part of our spiritual formation, our ongoing transformation that we look a little bit more like Jesus, that we sound a little bit more like Jesus the longer we journey with him. But that is definitely true of us as earthly children with our earthly fathers. How many of you can just remember, as I mentioned, can remember phrases and sayings that your dad would speak, right? Like I can still hear my dad's voice. I can still see my dad's face with several of the things that were the, the dad-isms in the Fitz home. Now, my dad was a really good dude, but there were some of those sayings, maybe several of those sayings that are a little too colorful for me to share in this environment, uh, but I can still hear my dad saying that stuff. Now, there were certain things, though, that I guarantee I never would have heard my dad say, and I'm guessing you would say the same thing. There's certain phrases, certain things that you know your dad never would have uttered, and the dads in this room would say, yeah, I would never, ever say that. So today, in a little bit of a throwback David Letterman style, we're going to do a top 10 list 
on the top 10 things that you would never hear a dad say. All right, you guys ready for this? Top 10, here we go. Number 10 on the list of things you will never hear from a dad. Well, it's pretty obvious I'm lost. I think I'll just pull over and ask for directions. Not going to hear that one. Number nine on the list. Here, honey, you take the remote. Maybe we should watch the Hallmark Channel tonight. Not happening in my house. Number eight. I've noticed that your friends have a hostile attitude towards authority, and some of them are really disrespectful. I like that about them. You're choosing good friends. Number seven. Hey, sweetie, here's my credit card and the keys to my brand new car. Go treat yourself right this weekend. Not going to hear a dad say that. Number six on the list of things you're not going to hear a dad say. What do you mean you want to play football, son? What's wrong with figure skating? Number five. You know, your mom and I are going to be out of town this weekend. I think it'd be a good idea for you to invite lots of friends over and throw a raucous party while we're gone. Number four, I have no clue how to fix your car. Just have it towed to the nearest mechanic and pay whatever he tells you to pay. Number three, no son of mine is going to live in this house without an earring. Now quit your belly aching and get down to the mall. Number two on things you're not going to hear a dad say, that dress looks awfully modest on you, sweetie. Don't you have something a little more revealing you'd rather wear to the high school prom? (laughs) Never going to say that one, ever. Um, And number one on the list, you're not going to hear a dad say, a job, a job? Why in the world do you need a job? I make plenty of money for all of us. Things you're not going to hear dad say, right? Now that's, that's pretty humorous, but we also know that there are some things we would like to hear dad say. And as dads and as children, we got to admit that there are times that we just don't hear certain things, what we would say is enough. And it's not so funny. It kind of leans more on the sad side. And you've probably already guessed, you probably already are before me on this one. There's three little words that many of us would say, we might not say it enough or we might not hear it enough. And those three words are, I love you. For whatever reason, that is a difficult phrase for a lot of dudes to say. But the tougher it is for you to utter those three words, the more meaningful it is for others to hear those words from you and the greater the impact it'll be when they do. So if it's hard for you to say those words as a dad or to your dad, I want to encourage you all the more to make sure you speak them today, to reach out, dads to reach out to your kids and kids to reach out to your dads. And it doesn't matter how old or how young they are and make sure you hear those words today. Make sure you speak those words today. Dad, I love you. Kids, I love you. But it's not enough for us just to utter those words once a year on Father's Day. And it's not enough for us just to speak those words. We need to live a life that demonstrates love, to live a life that demonstrates those words. And dads, you need to know that you have an incredible influence on your kids. In fact, the things that your kids see you do and hear you say are going to have as significant an impact on your kids as anything else they experience in life. It's like your superpower just from being a dad. You will influence your kids for good or bad by what you say and what you do. God's word instructs us to do everything with love. 
So guys, we need to let that be one of our guiding principles in life, that we do everything in love. Now, that's a tall order. That's a really challenging statement, right? Do everything. But when we look at the original language, right, the Greek from where we translate this to the English, the original language that this was written in, the word everything in the Greek actually means everything. It gives us absolutely no room to do anything in an unloving way. So every single thing we do is to be shrouded in love. And that's a tall order. But the love we're talking about today, it's not a romantic love. It's not even a family kind of love. It's more general than that. It's bigger and broader than that. The love we're going to be talking about today is a selfless concern for the well-being of other people. A selfless concern for other people. And this instruction to do everything in love was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Now, this instruction was given to the Jesus followers in Corinth. And Corinth was a city, 2,000 years ago, was a hustling, bustling city. It was a, a major trade city. And Corinth was known as a cosmopolitan city. It was known for its commerce, its wealth, its diversity. It was also known for its immorality. And the Jesus followers there who comprised that early church, and they were a mess. That that church was dealing with several problems. People in that church were suing each other in the local courts because of really some petty things. The people in that church were arguing about when they should do church and what they should do when they gathered at church and who should be able to do it when they gathered at church and how they should do all those things. They were disputing between different things that should be done and said and should happen. They were disputing between things they should eat and drink and all that kind of stuff. They were wrestling with all kinds of interpersonal issues. Some of the people in the church thought that they deserved more status and privilege and to be treated better than other people in the church. So they thought they deserved more than some of the other people. And there were all kinds of other issues going on too, not least of which was the sexual immorality in the culture had also infiltrated the church and was rampant in the church. And so the church was dealing with all this. That church was a messy place. And so God instructed and inspired his messenger, Paul, who was uh, a leader in the early church. He was a missionary in the early church. And he was the one who God had used to found and plant that church in Corinth. And God, through him, sent a letter, sent some instruction to the believers there in Corinth to help them get realigned with God's purpose and get realigned with God's, um, with God's mission and then to get in line with God and so to fix the mess in the church. And of all the things that, that were said, and, and that's where we get First and Second Corinthians, those two letters that we find in the New Testament. And of all the things that Paul wrote to that church, one of the main themes in the first letter is love. Paul says, what's going to fix all the issues in the church? God says, what's going to help this church get realigned? Love. Love will fix the problems. In 1 Corinthians 16, 14, again, we see this. Do everything with love. So that's our goal. Love is to be the framework for every action, for every interaction, for every word that is spoken, for everything that happens in our lives and in the church. Now, again, the love that we're talking about today, it's not the ooey-gooey, lovey-dovey, mushy-gushy kind of love. It's not a romantic love. It's not even a family love. It's that broader general concern for the well-being of other people. That's the kind of love we're talking about. But shouldn't that love be the, the kind of love that undergirds all other loves? Right? Shouldn't that be the love that we find in a romantic love? Listen, if you've got a romantic love, but it's lacking a selfless concern for the well-being of the other person, 
you really don't have love at all. <laughs> you might have attraction, you might have infatuation, you might have some manipulation, but you don't have love, right? So every love that we find should be undergirded by this selfless concern for the other person. Like that's the basis of it. And we should find it first and foremost in our homes, in our marriages and in our parenting and with our kids and and with our parents. That's where we should find it most and most often is that kind of love right there. So what this means for us guys is that we need to lead our families with love. Like of all things that we will do in the home, love needs to be the lead. Our leadership in the home, how we interact with the others in our home, should be first and primarily defined by love, right? Now, even though I'm speaking most directly to the guys today and most directly to the dads today, I'm speaking primarily to them, but I'm not speaking only to them. This is instruction for all of us, male, female, young, old, single, married, whoever you are, this instruction is for all of us. But this is especially valuable for the guys. And I think Paul's words in 1 Corinthians have an especially valuable meaning for guys today. Because right before Paul says, you know, do everything in love, this is what he tells them. It says, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, act like a man. Now, if there's ever a man's verse in the Bible, this is it, right? Man up, right? So be on guard. What Paul is actually instructing them is be on guard against temptation. And that advice is never going to go out of style, is it, guys? Because we know that every day around every corner, temptation lurks. And there is an enemy who seeks to bring us down, to tear us down. We are daily tempted. Tempted to compromise our integrity. Tempted to compromise our purity. Tempted to cut corners. And tempted to be selfish and prideful instead of selfless and humble. Tempted to do the things we know we should not do. Tempted to avoid doing the things we know we should do. And what's going to guard us from that? A firm foundation in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. And what he's talking about is our faith in Jesus. Not putting faith in our own courage, not putting faith in our own strength, not putting faith in what we do, but putting faith in what's already been done for us. That Jesus loved us, that he died for us, that he redeems us, that he is our strength. He doesn't just make us strong, he is our strength. Putting our faith, our trust, our hope in him. And so guys, what this means is we got to get regular time with our heavenly father. If we're not getting regular time with God in his word, listening to him, in prayer, communicating with him. If we're not getting regular time in God's house here together, whether it's online or here at the church, if we're not getting time with other guys who will help make us stronger and help us in that journey as we seek to draw nearer to God, if we're not doing that, then it's highly unlikely that we are going to lead as well as we could or should in our own homes. And when we don't do that, right, he tells us, be courageous, right? So we have to be courageous, getting time with God. Now there's a lot that we could say in that courage element, right? There's, there's a lot that we could talk about with being courageous, but I just want to hit on one thing of that today. I, I think one of the most courageous things that guys can do, especially dads in a home is to be vulnerable. And, and that's a scary thing for most of us, but for us to courageously confront our shortcomings and our failures and our fears That's one of the things the world and our families need to see most. It's a scary thing, but it's a courageous thing. It's a necessary thing. 
And, and listen, there is no perfect dad. None of us are perfect. All of us have blown it in some way, shape, or form way more than once, right? Every dude I know has fears and failures, flaws, has fouled up, has shortcomings, has tripped up, and has some brokenness in his story. And that's not just true of the dads. That's not just true of guys. That's true of all of us across the board. There is no one who has lived a perfect life. We've all had imperfection along the way. And guys, what our families need from us is to acknowledge that and to let God redeem that and move through that. Listen, if you're trying to fool other people into thinking you've got it all together, you're only fooling yourself, right? Because everybody knows that everyone else has issues. Right? Some people's issues are a little more visible. Some seem to be a little more messy than others. But none of us are perfect, and we know that, right? So there are some people who know it even better than others, right? If you are a dad and your kids are still living at home, your spouse and your kids have a front row center seat to how imperfect you are. And all you got to do is ask them for some humorous stories today. And they, I'm sure, will remind you of some of the imperfection, right? In the Fitz home, we like to joke about some of those from time to time. None of us are perfect. But what's great is that that's okay. Our kids and our, our wives, they don't need to see us try and pretend that we've got it all together. What they want to see is us admit that we don't and to acknowledge that. And the sooner we can courageously acknowledge where we don't have it together, then the more room we give God to work through that. That the sooner we lean into God courageously to say, God, I'm, I'm not okay here and I need you. Then the more God will redeem that and work through that. And that's one of the things I love about our God is that God doesn't love us only when we're good, right? And God loves us in spite of our imperfections, in spite of our failures, he, he welcomes us in, right? And he still delights over us and he sings songs of joy over us, the scriptures tell us, that God loves us with this enduring, unending love, even in spite of our failures. And, and one of the things that is so hopeful and helpful for me, and I know for many of you, is that God, when we lean into him and we acknowledge those areas where we mess up, that God isn't just willing, but he's desiring to bring some pretty awesome things, to grow some awesome and beautiful things out of the manure piles we heap up in our lives, right? And we've all got the manure pile hanging around somewhere of the things that we've done wrong. But if we don't exercise that kind of courage, then I fear that we will pursue the wrong kind of strong. Paul goes on, remember says, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, act like a man. Now, if I were to translate this a little bit more into today's language, I would just say it this way, man up, man up. Now, this is not a male versus female kind of thing. This is more a childishness versus maturity kind of thing. Paul's telling them, grow up in your faith. All you guys in the church, stop acting boyish and act like a man. Grow up in your faith and do the hard things that God is calling us to do. That's what God has for us here. Now, often I think we pursue our strength in some of the wrong kinds of ways. We pursue the wrong kind of strong. We often define our strength by what we eat or drink or what we drive or how much we lift or how much we make, right? I know a lot of guys, they would define their masculinity, their manliness by if they bench a certain amount of weight. If I bench 300 pounds, then I'm a, I'm a guy, Right? Some guys define their masculinity by their stoic personality, right? I can't show any emotion. 
I mean, if I show anything at all, it's got to be tough and angry. And I definitely can't cry. Like, since when? Like, how did that become a thing? That the guys would define their masculinity by how fast the car is, how big the truck is, how loud the motorcycle is, by all the toys in the garage, by all the tools in the shop, by how big the beard is or how big the bank account is. We define our masculinity by, you know, can I kill a bear with my bare hands? Right? We, we might define it by, you know, what we eat and drink. Because, you, 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 you know, you got to eat the steak raw and drink your coffee black and your bourbon neat, right? I mean, that's, that's the man way to do it. Now, those things aren't wrong, are they? But that's a pretty shallow definition of masculinity. That's a pretty limited perspective on being a man. It's missing a crucial component. And what does Paul tell us that component is? He says it's love. That the most masculine thing we can do, Paul says, is love. Because right after Paul tells us to man up, he tells us, let everything you do be done in love. Like he puts those two things together. They come back to back. And for Paul, it's one idea wrapped up together that your love is manly. That the most man up thing you can do is love up. To man up is to love up. Those two things are inseparable for Paul. Now, lest you think that Paul was some kind of wimpy, pansy, soft kind of guy, let me remind you who the apostle Paul was, right? The, the guy who's writing this to us. Paul grew up in a prestigious home. He came from a prestigious pedigree. He had the best schooling. He was incredibly intelligent. He was a very learned man. Paul was a very respected and educated man. He was a a religious leader of the highest respect, right? So he was a very intelligent guy, had all that together, all the success. He was also a very astute athlete, right? He, He was a boxer with this tenacious, never give up kind of spirit. So Paul had this manly side to him, right? And when Paul began following Jesus, Paul began being persecuted. And it takes a certain level of of manliness, I think, to endure what Paul endured. He was thrown in prison again and again and again, more times than he could count. He was whipped often on those times, whipped more times than he could count. Five of those times, he was whipped nearly to death within one lash of the whip away from dying. Paul was beaten regularly. He, He was just all the time going through challenges and trials. Paul was was beaten with rods. He was pummeled with stones. He was shipwrecked on one of his missionary journeys and spent a day and a night floating in the sea, the Mediterranean. That's kind of a scary thing to endure. He was faced with danger from robbers and rulers, and he spoke bluntly and boldly in the face of leaders of the land, knowing that he might be tortured and persecuted and harmed. He faced thirst and starvation. He was often sleepless and homeless, but he was never hopeless. He was beaten and bruised, but they could not ever beat his faith out of him. Paul just kept going and kept enduring again and again and again. And he had the scars to prove it. He was a tough dude. He was a scholar scholar. He was a leader of leaders. He was a man who, when he walked into the room... Everybody turned their attention to him. He just had that presence about him. He was a giant of the faith. He was a preacher's preacher. He was a man of God, and he was a man's man. Paul was tough. He was manly. He was bold. He was strong. And he said the most masculine thing we can do is love. The toughest thing you can do 
is show love to other people. That's Paul. Paul says, love is manly. And that doesn't mean it's not for gals. Also, there's this sweet feminine side to love as well. But guys, I think too often we've dismissed loving things as the feminine things. And we need to reclaim that. We need to step back into this, that love is manly. The most manly thing you can do is show love to other people. Now here, Paul in chapter 16 is simply echoing what he has already told the church earlier in chapter 13. And chapter 13 is his beautiful poetic uh, introduction to love. And Paul begins chapter 13 this way. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all the secret plans and possessed all the knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my own body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Now, I would, I would move forward on this, say, yeah, for our time and day, if, if I were to add to what Paul's saying there, if I were to paraphrase something that a little bit, I, I might say it this way. If, if I graduate from the most prestigious university with the most prestigious degree, and I've done everything I can, I've got all the scholarly uh, academics behind me, and I'm at the top of my class, but I don't show love to other people, then I haven't really learned anything at all. If I pontificate on social media about injustice and social concerns, if I speak my mind boldly from the keyboard behind the screen, and I say all that needs to be said on politics and social issues, but I never do anything to love the people in my own path, I've added no value to this world. If I get a good job and I receive many benefits and many promotions and many raises, and I'm successful as I can be in that career. And I make all the money and I get all the accolades. But I do nothing to sacrifice and give love to other people. I've achieved nothing. If I get big and strong and tough and buff, but I never stand up for the weak and I never defend the helpless and I never offer love to the least of these then I'm just an unloving wimp. Paul tells us to sum it up that nothing will compensate for an absence of love. We can do all kinds of things, but if we actually don't love other people when we do it, we've not achieved anything. Nothing will compensate for a lack of love in our lives. That's what Paul, that's what God is calling us to, is to love other people. Now, Paul continues on this idea, continues on the scene with a beautiful, poetic description of what love is and what love is not. And you've probably heard this before. You've likely heard it read at weddings. But I want to remind us, this is not a romantic love. This should undergird all romantic love. But this is bigger and broader than just a romantic love. This is the love that God desires for all of us to have for all other people. For everyone here to have for everyone else. This is what God desires from us for others. And he says it this way. Love is patient and kind. Patient. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because we live in such a fast-paced world. 
We live in a world where we want what we want and we want it now. Fast cars and fast internet and you name it, right? We want fast service and fast food. And when we don't get it and we have to call the customer service line, what makes us most frustrated is how slow the customer service is to get to us because we want it fast. We want it now. And so we become impatient. Impatience. We are addicted to hurry in our culture. So what's one of the kindest things we can do? Is show patience to other people. To practice patience by just sitting down with someone, sitting across the table from them or in a chair next to them, looking them in the eye, having conversation, listening to them. And, and that's tough. That, that takes time. We, we have to carve out the time. That takes being intentional. But one of the kindest things we can do is say, I am willing to make time for you because you matter to me. So Paul says that's what love does. And then he continues. He says love is not jealous. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's humble. It's not rude, but it's kind. Love does not demand its own way. Instead, a loving person gives way to what the other person needs and wants and what's in their best interest. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. Hmm. Keeping no record. You know one of the most dangerous and damaging things you can do in any relationship? With your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, your siblings, with neighbors, friends, coworkers, teammates, strangers, people at church. One of the most damaging and dangerous things you can do in any of those relationships is to hold on to the wrongs. To keep a tally mark of all the ways you've been shortchanged and all the ways the other person has done you wrong. Because when you do that, you actually hurt yourself more than you'll hurt the other person. You do hurt the other person because you keep them from the beauty of the relationship. But you actually heap up more damage for yourself because that just produces more bitterness and anger and rage and resentment. And that works against your own soul. It becomes a roadblock to mercy. It becomes a roadblock to love. Holding on to the wrongs that other people have done creates a roadblock to forgiveness. And remember, forgiveness frees you as much as it frees the other person. It frees you more than it frees the other person. Oftentimes, if you're not willing to forgive somebody else, that is far more damaging for you than it is for them. And so forgiveness, this freedom, this letting go of those wrongs, that's what love does. Paul goes on. He says, love does not rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It always remains hopeful and love endures through every circumstance. Now that's tough, isn't it? Because there are some circumstances it'd be easier to give up. It becomes easier to fight against the person instead of for the person. But love fights for the other person. That's, That's what it means, right? Love never gives up. And so instead of fighting against them, we fight for them. Say that with me. We fight for them. All right, let's say it together. Fight for them. Say it again. Fight for them. Let's say it one more time, everybody. Fight for them. Those of you who join us online, you got to say it too. All right, we're going to do it one more time because I know you're not saying it in your living room or the car, wherever you're watching. All right, so we're going to say it one more time. Fight for them. Fight for them. That's what love does. And so this isn't a love that's characterized by how we feel. 
This is a love that puts the other person's interests above our own, that genuinely looks out for what's best for them, even when the feels aren't there. And the beautiful thing about this is that we're all capable of it. Like all of us are able to do this, right? All of us have this capacity for this. There's not a person who doesn't have that capacity to demonstrate and show love towards another person. So that means if we're not demonstrating love to other people, it's not because we're not able to. It's because we're not willing to. We're not choosing to. So friends, here's what that means for us. And guys, I'm, I'm still, I'm poking you most today, but this is for all of us, right? What this means is that we must choose love. Choose. Everybody say choose. All right, if you're watching online, type that into the comment section. Everybody say choose. Say it like me. Say it with some oomph. Everybody say choose. Choose. All right, there we go. Yeah, choose. So here's a beautiful thing, right? We all get to choose. Say choose. We get to choose who we love. We all get to choose. Say choose. We get to choose how we love them. We all get to choose. Say choose. We all get to choose how often we show love to those people. We are faced with ample opportunities every day to show love to other people. We have opportunities every day to show love to him. And we, we can show love to every person we meet, everywhere we go, every day. Everyone, everywhere, every day. We can choose to be loving to those people. And that's what God would have for us. So Paul continues on this theme of love. And he tells us this, all right? He says, let love be your highest goal. Let love be your highest goal. Not one of your goals, not a good goal. Put love in the blender and mix it up with everything else. No, he says, of all things you can do, of all the goals you can have, make love the highest goal. Like if you're going to define success in your life by anything, let it be by how you love. Let it be how you love. All right. Let me be honest with you guys. I'm going on 17 years of being a dad. And and I don't know that through the years I ever would have said this out loud that I ever like would have articulated it this way. But in reflecting back on a decade and a half of being a dad, it it dawned on me that through the years, I kind of wanted to impress my kids. Like when my kids were little, I wanted them to be impressed by what daddy knew and how smart dad is and that dad could fix stuff around the house except for the car. But dad was, you know, impressive because he knew guys who could fix it and I'm working with him, right? And like anything that came up, I want my kids to be like impressed with dad, right? And as my kids got a little bit older and they started like running with me, I wanted them to be impressed with how fast I am, how fast I was, you know, um, <laughs> They're getting faster these days. When they were little, I wanted them to be impressed by, you know, like we'd go for bike rides and I'd have one of them in a little bike tag along thing behind and then the other two in the trailer behind that. It was like a train going down the, the bike trail. But I wanted them to be impressed like, wow, well, dad can pull all of us, you know. And, uh, and then they got big and I'm like, oh, I'm going to need you to help pedal now, all right? But it's kind of this weird thing, right? And, and my, my little guy who's not so lonely anymore, he started exercising with me. So he lives with me a little bit. And, and I'm kind of one of, I know I'm not the biggest, fastest, strongest, toughest dude, but, but I'm one of my boys. I like to be somewhat impressed as dad could throw some weight around. And, you know, and it's just goofy because like none of that stuff matters to my kids in, in all the other ways. Like with what I know, what I do, fast, strong, how much I make, any of that kind of stuff. Because I think every dad in some way, shape, or form, like we want that, right? We want our kids to be kind of impressed by us. Like we want to have the cool factor. And the the crazy thing is like when they're little, we already have it. Like those little ones, we are already Superman to them, right? 
Like, we don't have to do anything, and they're already impressed. Like, it's dad. Like, as I get older, we're like, oh, I got to, like, live into that now, right? And, like, eventually, like, it doesn't matter how cool you are. You can be the coolest dad in the world. You get teenagers, they're not going to admit it. They know it. They just don't admit it, right? But the funny thing is, like, of all that stuff, like, none of that stuff matters in the long run. And it, it dawned on me, like, if there's one thing I want to impress upon my kids, and this is something I've been working on the last few years. If there's one thing I want to impress upon my kids, one thing that I want my kids to be impressed with, at the end of my days, if they look back on my life and they say, this one thing about our dad, I want it to be how much I love. Like, bar none. I, I want it to be how much I love God. And because of that, how much I love their mom and them and other people, how much I love the church and how much I love the people in the church and how much I love all those people who aren't yet at the church with us and the people who need our church. If there's one thing I want my kids to be impressed with, it's that their dad had just an overflow of love. And I'm not there yet. Like that's my goal and that has become my highest goal. Love God, love others. That is the goal. I'm inching towards it. I'm not there yet. But guys, I encourage you to let love be your highest goal. Define success in your life by how much and how well you love other people. Because that's what the world needs from us. If there's any kind of strength the world needs from us, guys, it's that we have a strong kind of love. If there's any way that the world needs us to be courageous, it's that we are courageous with our love that we are willing to go love the unlovable and love the people who are hard to love. And sometimes that's in our family. A lot of times it's someone out there. But that's what the world needs from us. Now, I know this is, this is for all of us, but I'm talking especially to the dads today. How you define success in your life, let it be with this. Let love be your highest goal. Let's pray. Jesus, when we read through these passages and we read about love, we're really just reading about you. The way you love us and the love you have for us, radical and and ridiculous. A love without end and a love that keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus, you loved us all the way to the cross and to the grave. And you invite us through your love be in your heaven with you. I can't even grasp that. And so God, we want to know that love. We, we want your love to just be so, so filling in our lives. God, we, we want to we grab hold of it so much that we can't help but overflow that kind of love. So teach us, teach us to love like you do. God, help us to receive the love you have for us first and foremost. Teach us to open ourselves to your love. And because of that, that we would then love you in return and love others also. So teach us to love like you. Teach us to love with a radical kind of concern for other people, putting them ahead of ourselves. And God, that's what we want. At the end of our days, may it be said of all of us that we loved well and we loved big because we knew the love of our God for us. So Jesus, we pray. Amen.